This digitally remastered episode is sponsored by our publisher, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. To get a signed copy of our book, Transmigrations, go to sageandsavant.com or pick up your copy from edgewebsite.com or Amazon today. And now, for our show. Greetings and welcome to the audio-etheric transmission The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Episode 2, Time is Fleeting, was written by Eddie Louise. Our tale stars Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator, and features the music of Frenchie and the Punk. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our intrepid heroes, they were surrounded by the detritus of a laboratory destroyed in electrical fire and flooded with water. Fired by a newly resurrected zeal, Dr. Sage pledged to duplicate the disaster that had transported the pair to the battlefield at Auerstadt in 1806. Those of you with cooler heads may have been hoping that her fervor has faded in the intervening month. The AFCI crosses to the balanced polyphase system. It hasn't. The should be set to 20 King's College was suitably impressed with the results of the good doctor's galvanization experiments. This has provided funding for the winter term, which she is rapidly frittering away in the quest to recreate the happenings of that fateful day last month. Erasmus, there you are. And a good day to you too, my dear. Hold this. What exactly am I holding this wire for? I'm testing the shock levels. Ah, I see. And Petra, have you so much as eaten a biscuit today? Oh, there will be time for food later. I believe I've finally cracked the problem of duplicating the circumstances that led to our transmigration, if that is what it was. Stand still now. Yikes! Right, that's working. Why is it that when things work for you, I feel pain? Don't be a muffler, Erasmus. It was only 24 columns, barely enough to buzz your teeth. I'm still not entirely convinced we should be attempting to recreate a lab accident that led to our horrible demise. Be specific, Erasmus. We did not die. We simply experienced the death of others. I only ever wanted to experience one death, thank you. That is my own, at the end of a very long and happy life. I'm not trying to force us into multiple deaths, just to discover if it's possible for consciousness to exist without reference to time and place. Certainly, you can see the applications for such scientific inquiry. Imagine being able to study history by actually seeing it in situ. How might such circumstances change your fields of expertise, hmm? Well, yes, I do see how that could lead to great leaps of scholarship, but Petra, we died! I had my head staved in by a cannonball. It was most dreadful. I do not wish to repeat that experience. Well... It is not at all certain that I will be able to duplicate that experience in any form. Firstly, I must successfully recreate the conditions of the lab on that day in November. I think I may have cracked that now. Would that have anything to do with that high-pitched whining I just heard? Well, that was new since last week. 
What made that dreadful noise? Ah, that was my automatronic Cladney device. That sound is the piece of the puzzle I've been missing all this time. I had a dream of our last trip, and I remembered a detail I'd forgotten up till now. And that is? You, screeching like a banshee just before the water crashed. In fact, I now theorize that you screamed in the pitch of E-flat, which agitated the electrons in the energy beam and created a Cladney pattern in the electricity. I absolutely did not screech. I may have groaned a little as my skin blistered from the heat. And what, pray tell, is a Cladney pattern? Cladney patterns coalesce along nodal lines in vibrating masses, rather as Faraday patterns manifest in liquids, or, as I suspect in our specific case, in oscillating energy. Which means, if we can decipher the patterns and the directions of the nodal lines, we can begin to understand why we travel to Auerstadt, and even be able to duplicate that trip to 1806. But I say again, we died! Oh, remember your Hume, Erasmus. We died on our first venture. There's no reason to suspect we shall do so again. And, now that all is in readiness, we can test my hypothesis. By ready, she means she has set up the lab for another attempt to leap into the void. This is the ninth attempt this month. So far, the only thing to show for it has been singed hair and parboiled toes. Whatever is the sand for? For detecting the Cladney pattern. If my calculations are correct, the energy bolt will strike at the moment of the most intense acoustical wave produced by running this bow along the edge like so. Amazing. That random scattering of sand is sorting itself into lines and figures. Exactly. According to Cladney's law, frequency equals C times open bracket M plus 2N close bracket to the power of P. In this case, the coefficient P is 2, which is as close as I can calibrate it based only on the memory of your scream. E flat registers at 311 hertz. We shall just have to test it to see if I have hypothesized correctly. I sound a bit too much like caterwauling cat in your estimation. It is not the character of the sound, but the pitch of the tone I'm concerned with. I'm sure your original screech was manly and appropriate. Now, if you will just take off your shirt and step back against the platform... Take off my shirt? Did I stutter? Well... Yes, but but in the presence of a lady, one should not... I'm no lady, I'm a scientist. And I need access to your intercostal thoracic nerves. So this would be... Me buckling you in. Although our story might be more interesting if there were sadistic intentions afoot, I sadly must report that this procedure has been developed in order to protect our scientist's delicate proboscis after Sage took a nasty fall during attempt number four. Be still. This is for your own safety. Now, I must put these electrodes in the correct places to supply adequate stimulation and yet protect from damage. Whoa. Whatever are you wiring me up for, Petra? I was not connected in this manner the last time. Ah, yes, but you were in rather close proximity with me, and we were both quite wet. Scientifically, our electrical fields were co-mingling. I needed to recreate that without the burns and the, uh, ungainly positioning. I simply thought I could use galvanization to establish the connection without need for embarrassment. Once Savant is settled... Sage connects copper leads from the electrode posts on his temples, shoulders, and chest to the table. She then removes her own blouse, scandalously revealing her chemise and corset, and buckles herself in on the adjacent flatbed. Once she is secure, she adorns herself similarly with electric paraphernalia, 
She slides a control panel into reach at her elbow and pulls a lever. The two platforms begin to tilt backwards into a semi-reclining position. You do have on your hobnailed boots, as I asked, Erasmus. Yes, to my ever-present shame. They are not footwear, they are torture devices. Yes, yes, but they shall protect your precious feet from burns while still conducting the electricity towards the surface of the water. From here, Dr. Sage is ready to make yet another leap into the void from which we mere mortals expect never to return. Galvanization and Transmigration Studies, 12 December 1893, 3.45 p.m. Attempt number nine at recreation of the circumstances from 15 November 1893. If successful today, the subjects Erasmus Savant and Petronella Sage will transmigrate once again to the battlefield at Erstadt. To begin with, I shall attempt galvanization on a living subject to establish the electrical connection. Just what did you mean you're going to galvanize the subject? Exactly what I said, Erasmus. Haven't you been listening? I need to establish an electrical field with you. Since neither of us wished to be back in the uncomfortable position we found ourselves in the last time, I have chosen to link our fields via galvanization. You, you do not wish to be in that uncomfortable position. I'm quite fond of that position, actually. I would be most willing. Hush. This will be much easier if you lie back and close your eyes. The professor watches as the dynamo whirls into action, the strands of energy crossing wildly until they begin to spin in an upwards coil. A loop of golden energy joins the white and blue, and the twin columns slow into a hypnotizing spiral. Erasmus closes his eyes, listening to the clicking of the dials as Petra increases the electrical current. The clicking stops. Right. This may sting a bit. Uh. <sighs> Alright, old saw. I just need to update my notes, and we can give this a go, hey? Update 1. 60 columns sends an effective amount of energy to both parties. Gauges confirm an electrical field will be established between subjects. We now progress to the second part of the experiment and will attempt to create an electrical overload consequent to the happenings of 15 November. May God have mercy. Now is your chance, old boy. If you want out, just say so. No hard feelings. Whither thou goest, dear friend. Right then. When the electrical energy hits you, I want you to try and send it back towards me. I shall do the same simultaneous. I'm hoping that this will create a loopback effect with the current as we experienced before. Tally-ho! The doctor reaches out with a hobnailed boot toe and kicks open the spout to the crucible. The tray below their feet floods with enough boiling water to engulf the soles of their boots. Nothing is happening. No, wait. The leads connecting our scientists to the dynamo are twitching. The energy in the dynamo is spinning faster. And now it begins to buck and spit against the glass, tongues of lightning lashing against the narrow confines of the device. Sage reaches out and nudges the voltage a bit higher, and the electricity responds wildly. The room is crackling with static, and the bolts of lightning are becoming more and more frantic. Twin forks of lightning have broken free from the dynamo and are traveling the copper wire path to the scientists. There is an incredible thunderbolt of light, and then... All 
is silent and dark. An electrical overload of her own making has left Sage and Savant insensible on the slab. Will our intrepid scientists find themselves once again ghostly participants in the Battle of Auerstadt? We'll find out after this short musical break. Now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the musical outpourings of the remarkable Frenchie and the Punk. Last we saw our heroes, they had entered the silent, dark world of an electrically induced stupor. 
when Sage awakens, it is still silent and dark, though the room smells rather feckin'. Ugh! What is that smell? She slits open her eyes to discover one source of the smell. A giant vase of wilting lilies standing on a great sideboard. The flowers are not all that I smell. <clears throat> the flowers were not the only source, though. Slowly, Petra turns back to her left and sees a man sitting next to her on an overstuffed settee. He has thin and compressed lips turned down into what appears to be a habitual line of disapproval. He is wearing a somber suit and sports stiffly pomaded hair and a great caterpillar of waxed mustache. This man's pomade is definitely a contributor to the smell, but there's still an underlying note that I cannot identify. Suddenly, she becomes aware of voices in the hall, so quiet she has to strain to make out what they are saying. Most certainly they'll be posed now, and I do hope you'll find you'll be pleased with the results. Your parents are quite a grand couple, and I want to ensure we honor their proper standing. They are not my parents. They are my father and his evil sister, whom I hate. Can I come in and see him now? Indeed you can, in just a moment. I'm missing one final thing to set the appropriate mood for the portrait. I kinda seem to find the pastor's Bible. I'm sure the Reverend would want to be remembered with his grasp of the ever-living word, so he simply must include the Bible in the tableau. I slept with it last night. Wait here, I'll go retrieve it for you. Erasmus, Professor Savant, come now, my man. Did you make the trip with me? She turns to shake the shoulder of the man next to her, and the final piece of fecundity snaps into place. Ah. <laughs> they are corpses, being posed for an afterlife portrait. The natural decay of the bodies has begun. Decomposition. Oh, I feel better now. She is dressed in a fusty, high-necked gown of black broadcloth. The neckline and cuffs are starched white muslin, and the entire ensemble reeks of lavender water. One more note added to the overwhelming bouquet of the room. Erasmus? Wake up, Erasmus! All right, Hen. There's no need for the scrum. Where are we? I don't know. In a parlor, I suppose. I'm sorry I was not specific, Petra. This does not appear to be our start. So, what are our circumstances? What exactly is our condition? I haven't any idea. Oh, wait. Yes, there is one thing. We are dead again. That is for certain. I believe we're being posed for our death portrait. Beyond that, you have no idea. Well, this is not my area of expertise. I do believe you are a reverend, however. I heard others speaking of it in the hall. They've gone to retrieve your Bible. Let me just place the Bible and get your approval for the tableau and we shall have your portrait. We'd best lay low until the portrait business is done. It wouldn't do to startle them with resurrection at this point. Petra and Erasmus do their best to snap back into the positions they found themselves in upon awakening. It's a good job the photographer is distracted, though, else he would be certain to hear the frantic beating of the doctor's heart. There now, don't you feel better with your Bible to hand? He is talking to the cadaver currently inhabited by Professor Savant. Talking to dead bodies seems to be somewhat more of a common occurrence than you or I might have imagined. Papa? Oh, you've made him look so alive. Ah, yes, my dearie. It's part of the art. With the ambrotype, you'll be able to remember your father always as he was in life. At this very moment, as the photographer prepares his shot and the girl hovers in the doorway, fat tears trailing down her cheeks, a bee enters the room and makes straight for the most convenient perch, 
the pastor's rather prominent proboscis. Erasmus heroically resists opening his eyes as the bee lands on his nose. He remains stoically still as the photographer frantically tries to wave away the pesky insect using the closest thing he has to hand, a lily plucked from the vase on the sideboard. In fact, were it not for the great clouds of pollen this action releases, Erasmus might have maintained the play-acting long enough to convince the two that he was well and truly dead. Unfortunately, lily pollen was a severe allergen for the body our professor has found himself in, and so... <laughs> three things happen at once as Erasmus sneezes. First, the startled photographer snaps a picture. Second, the girl reacts by ecstatically throwing herself into the chest of the sneezing man. Papa, oh Papa, I just knew you weren't dead. And finally, genuflecting superstitiously, the photographer beats a hasty retreat. Uh, he, he's alive. Oh, I'm a kind. Oh! The cascade of sound ceases as suddenly as it began, and a hushed silence overtakes the room. The young girl clings to his lapels as Erasmus tries to decide his next move. And who might you be, young lady? It is me, Papa Clementine. Do you not know me? Right, Valentine, yes. I suppose we are related in some way? Oh, woe is me. To have regained a father only to be forgotten. Oh, my name is Woe. Woe! And with a great wailing and thrashing about, the girl manages to unseat our doctor with the strength of her lament. Oh, and Harridan returns as well. Will you claim me as your own, though you have nothing but hate in your heart for me? Or will you too claim the trip to the afterlife has stolen all memory of me? Whoa! Whoa! Quiet, child. The afterlife is a mystery beyond your understanding. You are right. I need understanding. I must go fetch Uncle Paul. He will know what to do. And before either of our flustered heroes could think to stop her, she is out the door. Ooh, this is not good. She thinks, well, they think, we've been resurrected. By now the photographer may have roused the entire village. We must slip away from here. But what here's here? I could guess mid-century due to the clothes, but mid-century Dover could be quite different than mid-century Kansas City. Do you think we might have traveled as far as the territories? I don't know. Something about the voices. The inflection was flat. The vowels hard-edged. Something. I, I need more clues. The professor strides to an escritoire huddled in the corner and begins rifling through drawers. Judging from the family tree inscribed at the front of this Bible, you are Jacob McGuffey, the pastor from a long line of pastors. You will be well known in these parts. Aha! Here, three separate statements on account, all derived from purveyors of goods in the Boston area. We must be in Massachusetts. Bully for that. Now let us slip away from here, meaning this house and the hysterical occupants, into the greater here, which we are now assuming is Boston. I'm afraid if we linger, that the company present at our waking will turn upon us, once they realize that we are not indeed the second coming of their beloveds. 
I do not trust the highly religious. They have no reputation for dealing with the disappointment of miracles gone awry. Papa, 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 I am back. Thank you for coming back to me, Papa. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Yes, yes, here, here. Uncle Paul said he needed help to figure things out, too. Uncle Paul said I should leave you alone. Uncle Paul said that resurrection is an exhausting business and that you might want to rest and visit with Aunt Euphemia for a bit. But I said you'd already been resting for hours and that you thought Aunt Euphemia was a meddlesome old besom, begging your pardon, ma'am, and that, of course, you would have missed me as much as I missed you. Quiet now, hush, child. You could talk the ears off a saint. <laughs> See, you are too, my papa, and not the risen Christ, as Sister Polly said. But of course, she wouldn't listen to poor little Clementine, because you know how she treats me like I've got less sense than a packet of seed corn. And now, she's gone to fetch the whole church, and Uncle Paul said is how it might be good to have you stand up and give testimony about the great beyond, since you are now an experienced traveler of those hallowed lands. But I said... Clementine, how long until the others get here? They won't come here, of course. Uncle Paul will send them next door to the church. And then, once everybody is gathered and in the proper prayerful attitude, they'll bring Papa in as the big surprise. Surprise! Oh, I suppose they'll let you come too. Columbine, are any of the others still here? Oh, Sister Polly gave the photographer two bits and sent him on his way. No need to pay for a death portrait when there aren't no dead about. And it wasn't our fault that the camera was broken in the midst of the miracle, thank you very much. And then she followed Uncle Paul out to spread the good news. Sister Cecilia is taken to her bed with the vapors, and that's how I knew that I could come back in to see you. Not one of those old fuss budgets to stop me. Indeed. Simpleine, I must ask you to unhand me. One simply cannot think while being strangled. Yes, that's better. Thank you. Now, how do I explain things to you? Do you remember me preaching on Christ's resurrection? And how everything was different once he arose? Yes. Well, it's kind of like that for you, myself, and Euphemia here. We've been changed by death and cannot resume our lives exactly as they were before. Do you understand? Yes. One of the things this means is that I cannot address the faithful as their pastor. That man is gone. I will need someone brave and smart to step into the pulpit in my place and bring the good news to the people. Do you know anyone brave or strong? Me? Me, I am brave. You told me so as you were dying from the yellow fever. Yes, I did. And if I were to write a homily for you to take to the people of the church, do you think you could do that? Yes, but only if there are no five-dollar words. Do you think that people will listen to me? You always said that women folk were to be quiet and not speak in church. There are many things that can happen when you die and wake up a day later. A change in your understanding is one of those things. I, I was wrong about women and their place in this world. Lucky for Savant, he is much better at ordering his thoughts on paper than he is at extemporaneous speaking, so in mere moments he has written an homily that would make George Bernard Shaw proud. There. Run along, child, and change the world! All right, what do we do now? Could we appear to the faithful? Maybe we can satisfy their desires and buy time to figure out what to do. 
I do not think that will work, Petra. If the child is right and Brother Paul went to rouse the populace, we do not wish to be here when the crowd arrives. Why is that specifically? History demonstrates that mobs are not generally kind to resurrected individuals who proved to be a disappointment. Judging by the behavior of those folks, this man was a religious leader of some magnetism and most likely wielded great rhetorical powers. I doubt I would live up to their expectations. Right. Plan B, then. Yes, Plan B. What exactly is Plan B? We make ourselves scarce. Quite. Our travelers turned as one to the door of the parlor and prepared to venture into the greater world of Boston. They had achieved the top of the stoop when they were flanked by an encroaching mob. Though the majority of the faces in the crowd are upturned in hope and prayerfulness, the presence of skeptics and doubters is still notable, as are assorted implements of a damaging quality. Ahem, colleagues, uh, thank you for attending this lecture, talk, a presentation, a sermon. As you might assume, the events of the past hour have been quite unsettling. I've had no time to reflect on these momentous happenings let alone order my thoughts to speak to you. As you probably are aware, science has begun to dissolve the dilemma of the human brain, and we now believe that in times of high stress, the faculties transfer the energy of reason to that of self-preservation, which means... Now hold on just one moment. Scientists are doing the good work of understanding God's creation in its entirety, which is far more valuable to the human race than blind faith. My friends, please understand, the process of inhabiting another person's body is not so simple as you might imagine. In the wake of such events, there's confusion and even wrong-headedness. Well, my sister is merely suffering from the results of that fraught passage. Well, as am I. What do you mean, inhabiting another's body? Are you not Reverend McGuffey? Dash it up. The mob engulfs our heroes, cutting off escape back into the house. The only way out is down a narrow, cobbled alley. Savant grabs Sage's hand and pulls her forcibly along their escape route. Run, Petra! Run, my dear! I suppose I should be grateful that this woman believed in practical shoes. But really, I cannot get over my peak that she also believed in demons and possession. Oh, give me my hand, Erasmus. I shall run faster if I can pick up my skirts. Oh, faster would be good. And superstition has a sociological purpose, dear doctor. In times of trouble, a little reasonable fear can keep one safe inside the cave. The fear I'm experiencing now is not unreasonable. With the mob hot on their tails, our heroes run for their lives, turning corners and flying past houses and warehouses, finally coming out on a green with a steep upward slope. Up this way, Petra. Maybe we can lose the mob in the trees. They labor up the hill, the mob snapping at their heels until they reach the top. Run, Petra. Run. It's flat up here. We must make some mess. Whoa, it's Petra. What? A sudden drop off a steep cliff leaves our heroes' borrowed bodies in a heap on Baldwin Street. Is this the end for Sage and Savant? 
Have they finally taken the plunge into true death? We'll find out after this short break. Hello, listeners. Eddie Louise here, head writer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. I like stories that ignite my imagination, that make me think about the world in new ways, and that inspire me to build a future world. This is the kind of fiction I strive to write, and this is the kind of fiction published by our sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Featuring works by established authors and emerging new voices, Edge is pleased to provide quality literary entertainment, including book one of the Tales of Sage and Savant, Transmigrations, in both print and pixels. Look for books with the Edge logo at your local bookstore and online for Kindle, Kobo, Nook, iTunes, and Google Play. Find your next great read at www.edgewebsite.com. Yes, dear friends, when you want to curl up with a great story, trust books from Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. And now, back to our story. I am relieved to inform you that our scientists' consciousnesses have returned to their proper skulls. Petra, uh, are you back, Hen? Oh, Erasmus, are we back? I'm here. I rather wish I wasn't. Well, that was nearly worthless. It will be impossible to collect data if we're given such a limited window to explore the lives we're sent into. I wonder if there's any way to control our destination. Yes, you're right. Worthless. We certainly won't be trying that again, now will we? It's just phantom pain. I mean, my, nothing's wrong with my bones or my muscles. Everything seems to be no bruising, but it's pain. Will we? Interesting. The nodal pattern in the sand is grouped all in the southwest quadrant. I wonder if these patterns will shape differently depending upon where in time and space we've gone. I need to take evidence of this. Petra, what are you doing? Recording the results. I must keep complete records if I'm to understand all of the factors involved. This Cladney pattern might be key. Key to what? Another death in another far-flung corner of space and time? Exactly. The key to making it happen again. Update 722. After successful transmigration, we were flung out of the inhabited subjects by dint of a fall from a cliff. All bones and tissues on our own bodies are intact, however, so I hypothesize that the memory of pain is not the same as actual pain. Phantom pain must exist in a different part of the brain. From now on, I will be constantly... And so we leave our friends here as Dr. Sage plans for yet another leap into the void. Join us next month for the continuing adventures in the tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Chip Michael as Savant, Eddie Louise as Sage, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Episode 2, Time is Fleeting, was written by Eddie Louise. Theme music by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was Bringing Out the Dead from the album Bonjour Batfrog by Frenchie and the Punk. Check them out at frenchieandthepunk.com. We would like to thank our friends Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing for sponsoring this digitally remastered episode. Catch our website at sageandsavant.com and like us on Facebook to stay current with all things Sage and Savant. And remember, death is no barrier to science.